Hello and welcome to episode 89 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. It has been too long since I got to talk to all of you. My grand plans for being so regular with the podcast have been derailed. by being a healthcare worker again in 2021, a career in the past I would have highly recommended. And now I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if you got other options, you might want to look around. (laughs) Anyway, it is a rainy, rainy day. We're getting the remnants of Tropical Storm Fred, I think it was. We're getting the remnants up in Western North Carolina now. So it's just been pouring rain all night and all day. What a great time to record a podcast when I have an off day. I mean, I could be cleaning my house or doing something practical, (laughs) But I would much rather sit down and talk to you guys, of course. So it's mid-August. This is a real transitional time, at least for my particular ecosystem here in the high Appalachians. We're in that transition where it can still be quite warm in the day. I've taken all the honey off that I plan to take off. I still left a lot behind because I've just, because I don't make my living from selling honey, I've just found it so much easier to leave it on there as opposed to taking it off, selling it, and then having to put it back on or move it around. Try to do as little of that as possible. But still, sometimes, because of the, the different things I've done with splitting hives, some might be too light, as uh, time goes by, I found it much easier to remedy a hive that's too light. If you get started early, it's real easy uh, with supplementing with sugar. If you have to, I prefer if I can to Robin Hood capped frames out of one hive into another hive that's too light and kind of get them to the size that works for me. Now, this is something As you have more years in beekeeping, and those of you who have a lot of years, something to teach the people that you are mentoring is to figure out in your particular ecosystem, in a typical year, what is the size that you want to go through winter. I have a friend who's simply on the other side of the county, but our locations are different enough. And I will say our lines of bees are different enough that we have slightly different overwintering configurations. Her bees, I believe, are kind of more of an Italian lineage. They tend to have bigger populations. Mine tend to be more of a Carniolan lineage. Typically, there's a bunch of stuff mixed in over here. They tend to overwinter with a much smaller cluster and not need as much honey to support the population because there's not as much population. But then, of course, there's different issues because it also runs into these small populations. As you heard me talk, there's a fine line between a conservatively small population and a non-viable population, depending on how hard the winter is and how quick it sets in. So for my yard, I use eight frame mediums. And if I have a young hive that has made it to three boxes, and maybe it's a split I made in the summer, I've built them up, they have uh, three boxes, nice population, nice and heavy, that will do fine in a typical winter here. And because I'm keeping an eye on things, uh, doing tilt tests in the winter, and also I have that thermal camera so I can see exactly where the cluster is, how high up in the box they are. If you don't have a thermal camera, the easy way is just peek under the lid. And if they're right up at the top, then they probably work their way through most of their honey. So what I do is just don't let that go too far. Keep an eye on them, keep an eye on the weight. If I need need to add a winter patty, use those last year and actually really like them, especially for the little overwintered nukes. They were really great to just be able to stick a winter patty right on top of them. And I I really liked those. The winter patties are formulated different than the pollen patties, although they look very similar. They don't have nearly as much pollen in them. And so they don't promote a 
a bunch of brood building, but I was very pleased with them and will plan to keep them on hand again, in particular for those smaller hives that get to the top too fast. So about this time of year, what I'm doing is I'm going through the hives, kind of checking to see how much how many boxes of stores they have in comparison to their population. I mean, there are some that were just incredibly productive. They have an average size population, but they have a ton of honey in there. And that's no problem. Um, I am happy with that. Happy to move those frames around to others that, that might need it. So that balancing out works well for me. Of course, it goes without saying that this is last call for any type of health checks, mic checks, all those things. This is last call because we're just about to start that approach that builds up speed. The article that I picked out to read to you today, and I'm reading articles partly because my brain is just fried, (laughs) and and also because it reminds me of things that, that I want to tell you. This one today is from August 2019 in Bee Culture Magazine. And thank you, Bee Culture, for giving me permission to read some articles. This one's by Ross Conrad. It's called Winter's Coming, Time to Ensure Hives Have Enough Honey. And I thought I'd read this. It's not very long. Then in at the, either at the end of this podcast, depending on how long it does take, or uh, for the next one, I would just reflect on my thoughts on how Ross does things in Vermont versus how I typically do things here. And wherever you find yourself, hopefully you'll find some tips that work for your particular location. I'm not sure if I finished that thought earlier of figuring out over time the size and the configuration that you're aiming for. And by configuration, I mean whether um, in some areas of the country, people will overwinter in singles. I think doubles or brood boxes are more typical. If you use all the same size box like I do, you just get a number that you know if they make it to that number, they're going to be fine. If mine have grown up to about three. Now remember, I typically raise a lot of new colonies. I try to go into winter with very young queens and sort of a fresh colony. I've been experimenting this year with some splits. It's kind of a different variation on some of the ones I've tried in the past. One split, see I'm already getting off topic. I'm getting back to myself (laughs) talking to you guys. One split that I've tried this year that's pretty interesting, again, for a specific reason. Now, I've said this before, you know, when they teach you just, oh, a walkaway split or, oh, this kind of split or an even split, every split has little pluses and minuses depending on what you're trying to achieve. And this is something, if you really get good at knowing the pros and cons of each type of split over time, whatever it is you're trying to achieve, there's going to be a split that's going to be make most sense for that. So this year, I had some overwintered queens. I had already uh, peeled off some of their population by, you know, making other splits with some mated queens that I had gotten from a few breeders who'd shared some interesting genetics with me. And so they weren't huge. They weren't huge hives. I had the the elder queens still in a fair-sized colony. I wanted to definitely do a mite break. I'm, uh, I should a brood break is what I'm trying to say, but it creates a break in the mites too. And that's part of the goal of doing this. So this new split that I, that I worked with this year, it was, I believe I've seen it called a flyback split. I think Lori, the queen breeder out of Washington state on Facebook one time described, or maybe it was on B-Source, described what she called a flyback split. And that is she would take the, the old queen and move her to essentially a box of empty drawn comb back at the old location, so at her original location, which of course all the foragers are going to come back. So what you now have is a clean, empty, fresh start 
hive. You've got drawn comb so she can immediately start laying. Then you've got all the foragers that are going to provide whatever she needs and build up that new brood nest. But what you've done when you put that queen over in that new colony and you've removed all the frames of brood and all the nurse bees essentially to a different location when and you're going to do a split with them and maybe you add a mated queen to them or maybe you let them make a queen um, if they have enough enough population to to make a good queen and of course you're going to have to attend to their stores and all that because they don't have their foragers but anyway back at the original location this elder queen and her foragers have a very low mite count in all likelihood if you started out good because as we know most of the mites are going to they're going to focus on those poor little nurse bees and the brood so if you've moved all that to another spot requeened or done whatever you're going to do with them then you have this older queen building a brand new brood nest on new drawn comb and it's it's kind of a cleansing thing and what lori said I believe, if I remember correctly, was that it that there's a point at, because there's no brood in there that if she were going to do, I believe she used oxalic dribbles, that that would be a great time. Now, I could be messing that up because that's not a part of my particular management. I did find, to my great surprise, one elder queen, plenty of drawn comb, especially in the middle of a flow, and at full foraging force. They build up, they build back up incredibly quickly. And sometimes I would put them out, you know, thinking, oh, you know, there's just, they're going to be starting from scratch. I put them in a, in a nuke, the queen in a nuke with just empty drawn comb, maybe one comb of stores just in case there's a rainy day. And then the foraging force. And they would have that thing full in no time. And again, this was in the summer with a flow. And then I could upgrade them to a regular box again. So I think in my mind, that was going to be her little retirement villa, and she was probably going to peter out. So I'd let them reestablish, but then, oh, how wonderful to have that fresh, clean hive to requeen. But in every case, I've been amazed at how the Elder Queen has done. So some of them, I've let them go forward and will overwinter them as kind of an experiment in queen longevity. And also, I'm kind of curious to see if they will attempt to supersede that Elder Queen here late in the summer, because these are marked queens. So anyway, I'm kind of just paying attention to that. But that flyback split is a a new tool in the toolbox. Because I did so much splitting this year, because I had the opportunity to try out quite a few uh, new genetic bloodlines that breeders have shared with me, my mite counts have been spectacular. I'd like to claim some credit for that or even to say, look how good my bees are doing, but I have a feeling it's more a function of the splitting. The hives that I was the hives that I had kind of designated as my honey hives, uh, basically what I did is a kind of a modified cut down. <laughs> I love how the longer you do this, it, nothing really follows a recipe. You just sort of tweak and lean in the right direction. And uh, because you've, I don't know, it, it is the great thing about doing it many years is you, you don't, you just don't have to think as much, which the past two years, that's been really good for me. <laughs> but my honey hives, I did, basically I worked to build them up to honey hive size And then just as the flow was starting to come on, I would retire that queen. So during, and and that is one component of the cut down of where you essentially 
cut down on the num- the amount of brood that they have to deal with and that allows them to focus pretty much all of their energy on honey. Now that's not why it's called a cut down, but I did notice that that's something that gets cut down too. So, But that was very successful with honey, even out of just a few hives because I was just doing it strictly for friends and family this year, but I was very pleasantly surprised at Again, at how much honey, if you really do, if you do the cut down protocol, even though I didn't really divide up the hive, pretty much all I did was the nucleus split, which I, which I covered in a Patreon podcast recently, I seem to remember. But anyway, let me get into this article for this gets too long. And then probably in the next one, I'll just do some discussion on it. And I hope, I hope, I I just, I just don't even want to make promises anymore about how quickly I'm going to get to it. But, but let me say thank you for your patience. Thank you for those who've written and let me know that you're going back through some of the older podcasts looking for information that you need. That's really fun. And the overall, the podcast is just about to pass 150,000 downloads. And that's pretty thrilling to see that number. So thank you all. Thank you, especially to the patrons who keep the lights on around here on this podcast. All right, so here it is, Winter's Coming by Ross Conrad, August 2019 of Bee Culture. In the northeastern United States, August is the time to start preparing honeybee colonies for winter. There are two primary tasks that the beekeeper need to accomplish at this time of year. The first is to be sure that mite levels are under control. The second, and the focus of this article, is to ensure they will have enough honey to see them through the winter months. The process of providing enough food for a colony's winter needs starts several weeks prior to the honey harvest. During the end of July or early August will be the last time I place empty honey supers on colonies in Vermont to provide room for nectar storage. I hope to give the bees plenty of time to fill all the space they've had prior to my harvesting the excess honey they'll not need for winter. The first weeks of September are the only time of year that a clear evaluation of winter stores can be made providing an honest determination of any excess that may be available for harvesting. So this is interesting. So he he harvests in September. That's that's different from most folks, but that's this is interesting. Okay. Regular readers will know that when harvesting honey, I like to leave the equivalent of a full deep super of honey, two shallow supers, on top of the brood nest in the hive. This mimics the way that bees naturally organize their hive with honey located mostly off to the sides and above the brood. By leaving most of the honey stored in the hive above the brood, the bees can easily move up in the honey supers once they've consumed all the honey that is below in their autumn brood area. I'll pause here. So beginners, there's your answer to your question, should I take my queen excluder off? Yes, yes, yes. If you're using one, you definitely take it off because you definitely don't want your queen literally left out in the cold as everybody moves upstairs. Okay, the benefits of leaving plenty of honey above the brood nest for winter are several. First, I don't have to worry much about the bees running out of honey before next spring. This saves me time by eliminating extra hive checks and greatly reducing the need to feed during autumn, winter, or early spring. It also helps to ensure that the bees have access to all the carbohydrates they need when they need it, so their spring conditioner will be strong and they will be fully primed for the new season ahead. A late August, early September harvest also allows me to evaluate each colony's honey storage and provide plenty of warm, provides plenty of warm weather to allow time to feed colonies that have not gathered enough honey to see them through the dearth of winter. 
although sometimes there's a late-season honey flow of goldenrod and aster, you can't count on it, and if you do and it does not materialize, it may become too cold to feed adequately for the winter. Once temperatures have dropped to the point where the bees have to cluster in order to retain warmth, it becomes difficult for them to reach feeders that are not positioned directly next to the cluster. I would much rather feed early and leave any goldenrod and aster honey for the bees to pack into their hive as extra insurance and be sure colonies are good and heavy once the winter season settles in. My first chance to feed bees that did not gather enough for themselves during the season is when I am taking honey supers off the hives. Removing a super full of capped honey and placing it on top of a colony that needs a super full to get through the winter is the fastest and easiest way to ensure that the bees have access to the highest quality food for the winter months. When we provide a colony with capped honey in the comb, we are also conserving the colony's energy and saving the workers of the hive the work of processing, dehydrating, and capping thousands of cells of honey. Colonies should also be fed when they contain combs that are not full of brood, pollen, or honey. This also means feeding is called for when the hives contain undrawn foundation, especially when those unused frames of comb are above the brood chamber. Such unused areas, when left in an overwintering hive, can cause the bees to eat themselves into a corner and starve once they find themselves surrounded by nothing but empty comb or foundation with the rest of the honey in the hive too far from the warmth of the cluster to reach. Colonies that need a few frames of honey rather than full supers will need additional feeding of syrup. It is standard practice to always use syrup made of two parts sugar and one part water late in the season in order to get the maximum amount of carbs into the hive as fast as possible. Unless you have a colony that has recently gone queenless and can be ransacked for frames of capped honey to give to colonies in need, removing individual frames of honey from one hive to feed another simply shifts the problem of empty space in the hive from one colony to another rather than solving it. I'll pause here and reflect on what I said earlier. What I meant was I take off maybe a super from a hive that doesn't need it and then divvy up that super, uh, exchanging empty frames for full frames. So that's what I meant if I didn't make that clear. Okay, back to the article. When feeding a colony in an effort to get them to fill empty comb or draw foundation out into comb, I find it helpful to rotate the empty frames or foundation from the outside edges of the super into the interior. Bees seem to dislike a lot of unused empty space in the midst of their nest and will tend to fill such frames faster than if they are off at the far edges of the hive. Empty unused frames along the outside edges of the hive are common when additional honey supers are added to the colony too soon. Bees will often ignore the frames on the outer edges of their nest and move up into the fresh supers, creating a chimney effect, where the center frames are all in use, but the outer frames are not. Since I tend not to use queen excluders, colonies with a prolific queen will sometimes expand their brood nest up into the honey supers as well. In order to reconfigure the colony so that the brood is primarily below and the majority of honey is above it, I will exchange the frames of brood from the upper supers with the frames of honey to the lower hive bodies. Should a colony have so much brood up by the inner cover that there are not enough frames of honey below in the brood nest to exchange with them, late August or early September is not too late in the northeast to place an entire super of brood down on the bottom board. 
I use screened bottom boards open all year round, so after reversing the bees in spring, the bees will tend to move up into the move up in the hive during late spring and summer. So there's more of a buffer between their brood area and the screened area. By autumn, the bottom super by autumn the bottom super may be mostly empty. Since this empty space is not in the upper portion of hive that the bees will occupy, there's usually no problem with storing a mostly empty super on the bottom of the hive during winter, especially if storage space in the honey house is at a premium. Now this is a good point. Um, this is Lee. I'm pausing here. That if you don't want to, um, if they have extra space in the hive, as long as it's below them, it's much less of a problem than if it's above them in terms of their heat. Okay, so just make a mental note of that. Back to the article. If there are too many hive bodies of brood on the hive, however, I can remove the bottom super, replace it with one of the brood-filled hive bodies in order to keep the hive configuration with the brood mostly down below and the honey above. The empty hive body on the bottom board can also be removed if the hive is made up of too many boxes and I want to contract their size of the colony's cavity so it's easier for the bees to patrol and maintain throughout the winter months. <laughs> so he goes back and forth there, but it is true, you know, balance between those two things are the goal, is the goal. Balance is the goal. This process is similar to the reversal process used in spring to slow down the swarming impulse. Only an empty super is not placed on top of the hive to provide more space for the colony expand to. At this time of year, we work to accomplish the opposite. And rather than provide additional space, we should remove extra space in the hive, especially the extra space that's located above the brood nest. It is hard to exaggerate the importance of getting rid of all the empty unused space within the hive to ensure that as the cluster migrates upward during the winter, they are always in contact with stored honey and pollen and won't starve. Making sure colonies have enough food to see them through until spring is one of the easiest winter preparations we beekeepers can do to help guarantee strong colonies next year. But providing bees with adequate food reserves for winter requires a lot more than just feeding or even the amount of honey that's in the hive. We have to harvest our honey crop at the right time. We have to make sure the honey in the hive is organized appropriately. And we have to give ourselves adequate time to provide enough feeding when necessary. In order to accomplish these tasks, we have to start thinking about a colony's winter reserves early and begin work to provide adequate food to hives in August in order to ensure that colonies will have enough food to see them through the coming winter months. Ross Conrad, it says at the end of the article, is co-author of a newly released The Land of Milk and Honey, A History of Beekeeping in Vermont. And actually, I haven't heard of that book, and that sounds pretty darn good. So that little article was Winter's Coming. If you happen to be a subscriber, and I hope you are, to Bee Culture, if you go back in their archives online to August 2019, you can read this article. And that's something that I do love, being a subscriber to both Bee Magazines, Bee Culture, and American Bee Journal. Those online archives are the bomb, because sometimes if I just feel like I'm not on top of my game and I want to refresh myself of everything I should be doing at a certain time. It's pretty fun. It, it, and that's how I got this article to just go back through and read August of this year and then go back and read August of last year and go back and read August of the few years before. And you just get a lot of viewpoints on what everybody should be doing and especially depending on, on your location. So I want to say one thing 
about the very end of this article. You know, he wraps up all this rearranging and all the stuff that we're doing. And it's so interesting that in the Layens hive, which you all know is the horizontal hive that I've been working with, I've had to do pretty much none of this. <laughs> I just love it more and more. I have not overcome the different frame size, which that is, that's why I'm not getting more, any more Layens hive, but I'd still plan to redo and and do like um, maybe a, a it may be even a double deep Langstroth frame in a Layens style hive but it is pretty darn amazing when you do not disturb the the layout uh, of how the bees do it they expand and they contract with very little intervention on the beekeeper that's not to say I'm not managing them because I'm checking on them. Mostly I'm just looking at them in, in fascination and I have taken some frames, huge, giant, heavy frames out that are full of honey and that I will cut up to make some comb honey for gifts. But it is pretty striking. You know, obviously in a tree, bees don't have anybody rearranging them and they they do this expansion and contraction. And of course, it's it's our management which some of which is necessary some might be unnecessary but it's our management that tends to break up their natural organization so if you have them even if you have them in a um, like most of mine in a vertical that's what I'm trying to say style hive it's the goal is to get them back the way they would arrange themselves if we hadn't taken off honey or if if we hadn't made splits, etc. So somewhere to me between the those tensions of just tons of commercial manipulation for the honey and then the other extreme, which is just never checking on the bees, which usually means within a year or two the bees are no longer with you <laughs> somewhere between those seems to be to me the the happy medium something about the horizontal hive layout i i, I just keep feeling like that's the direction i'm going to go because from a labor standpoint it is so much easier now they're not the least bit portable so all the things i do you know when i make nukes and i move this over here and i move this one over there and i take this one to this out yard you know all that ends in terms of the horizontal layout i'm just i'm rambling here and this is not about feeding so please forgive me but it is fascinating the difference in the amount of intervention kind of needed to keep them in the right order after i've messed with them versus the amount of intervention, which is almost none. <laughs> I mean, I again, I do health checks. I have given them brood breaks, all that, that stuff. But the the amount of work that is removed by changing the format is pretty amazing. And I don't know enough about it to say more than that, except I'm definitely experimenting in that direction. While also saying, I, I can't fathom how I'm going to do without all my little medium boxes that it's just so easy to break off and make a split or break off and make a nuke or combine. all. There's so many things that I feel like I've gotten skillful at that I, I'm going to have to learn different skills to do it in a, in a horizontal format. I'll leave that there. I hope you are all having wonderful luck in using all your skills. That, that really doesn't make sense, does it? It's you either have luck, well, I guess you have luck and skills is the, the best possible combination because you can have a lot of skills and have bad luck and it still go awry and you can not have good skills. And if you're lucky, it'll go well for a while. But 
having the both of them is definitely the the best case scenario. But I hope it is all going well with your hives in this crazy world. I hope your bees are strong and that things are going well for each of you. So in the next podcast, when I check back in with you, I'll just tell you more details on the various large and small dramas going on in the various yards. Y'all take care and I'll talk to you soon.